Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if we are successful in our mission of awakening hearts in every generation to the power of life in Christ, then we'll begin to look more and more like disciples who exhibit this transformed life of freedom, of joy, of sacrifice, and renewal. A life of renewal is one that has been transformed by the life-changing grace of God. This grace and forgiveness is something that we, that we eagerly seek to, for God, but how easy is it for us to forgive others? Especially those who have really hurt us deeply. How easy is it to forgive our enemies? And in this text, Jesus, as he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, that we will be forgiven in the amount that we forgive others. On top of that, when we are forgiven and readily forgive others, we encounter this transformation that God works in our lives. Today, I want to start with this idea of forgiveness and then move on to this concept of transformation, both of these together working in the life of renewal. Forgiveness. As Pastor Arp read just moments ago, those beautiful words that David writes in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. How do we get this incredible gift of forgiveness? Perhaps you've struggled and wrestled with that feeling of guilt that's just hard to get rid of. That, that deep, dark, compressed tension right in your gut and wonder what to do with this. And perhaps you've tried all kinds of things. You've, you've blamed others that, that I did this because of what's been done to me. Or maybe you justify it or, or rationalize it, comparing yourself to the other worst things that people do. You know that, that popular hymn, Chief of sinners though I be, Pastor Arp still worse than me. We do that, don't we, though? Like, sure, I've messed up, but not nearly as bad as my neighbor. I'll probably face consequences for that. <laughs> or we analyze it, or we just deny it. It never happened. But in the end, there's only one real way to deal with guilt that has any effectiveness whatsoever. We have to go face to face with God. We have to admit what is wrong and broken. We have to confess to him in repentance. That is the only cure for guilt, the only cure for sin. Now, that's what confession is, just admitting our guilt in front of God. It's to admit those things that if you don't admit, they're going to control your life forever. There's a recovery slogan that was continually stuck in my head this week that says, you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. It's so incredibly important to be real in front of God. To know that you are in need of rescue. To know the great cost that God paid in order to make that rescue happen. To remember the death of Christ. 
to know that our sin, our shortcoming, no matter how small or how big we think it to be, has incurred this life debt that must be paid. The things that we are doing are really wrong. The very act of Jesus dying on the cross for my sin, for your sin, shows the severity of it. But it also shows the great care and love that God has for you, that he will go to any length to pursue you and rescue you to become his own again. Picture him in that garden of Gethsemane prior to his arrest, sweating so hard it's like drops of blood. Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus knew that the death that he had coming to him was more than merely a crucifixion, but that on him would be heaped upon him the sins of billions of people. He would die a death that no man had ever died before nor ever will again. With all of that burden of the sins of the world throughout history, all focused and concentrated on his life. When he speaks the words, it is finished, that debt has been paid in full. It no longer exists. We have been set free. That is the cost of the forgiveness that God has given to you. But what about when you've been really bad? When you feel like you've done things that no one else has? that heavy feeling of burden. The old preacher R.C. Sprouls tells a story about a woman who came to him and said, Dr. Sproul, I have, a, I have a real problem. I keep asking for forgiveness and asking for forgiveness and asking for forgiveness, and I just don't feel forgiven. Maybe you can relate. Well, R.C. Sprouls looks at the lady and says, well, your problem probably is you're not actually asking God for forgiveness for the right sin, the main sin. Well, what's that? She asked. He said, you haven't asked for forgiveness for your pride. You see, what we say when I, when I can't forgive myself, what we really mean is that I don't deserve forgiveness. I've failed and I'm not worth it. And we want to punish ourselves so that we feel bad for what we've done. And when we say I can't forgive myself, it may look on the outside like spiritual humility. But instead, it's absolute arrogance and pride. Because what we're saying is my sin is no match for the victory of Christ. Which is a lie from the enemy. One of my favorite parables is that of the, the prodigal son. Right? And we call the parable the prodigal son because the, the, the son who, who goes away and just spends uh, without thought all of his father's inheritance, but actually the true prodigal in this parable is the father himself, who has just lavished upon his wandering son all of his earthly riches. And then when his son comes back again, he lavishes his son with all of his love, grace, and acceptance and forgiveness. And we see that great picture of the prodigal son coming over the horizon, practicing his, his repentance, practicing his apology to his father. Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. Please forgive me. Please just let me be your servant. 
and he's practicing it over and over again. And as the father sees him, because he's been looking for his son each and every day since he's left, and he sees the silhouette, and he charges after his son, not out of rage or anger, but out of love and compassion and eagerness to wrap him up. And the son starts the confession, but before he can even finish it, the father says, I love you. And he wraps his arms around him, starts kissing his face and, and says, kill the fatted calf, bring a ring, bring a robe, bring shoes. My son was lost and is now found. Do you realize that when you start those words of confession that you spoke this very morning, before you even finished it, the father was embracing you saying, my son, my daughter, I love you. I forgive you. Before you even get the words out of your mouth. Now, Jesus gives us a test, a, a litmus test, as to whether or not you've been really, truly repentant. I found this to be very interesting. Tim Keller was the one who had this insight, and he says this, that you want to know what the litmus test is, whether you've really been repenting and receiving forgiveness, then the test is, how are you forgiving others, especially your enemies? How to forgive even when it hurts you to forgive. And I think that it's, it's very important that we make a very special distinction here because it's one thing entirely to, to know that you need to forgive somebody, to, to not be ready to forgive somebody, but praying to God, Lord, help me come to a place where I'm willing to forgive this person. There's a totally different thing between this individual and the person who says, Lord, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I will never forgive that individual. That is a very dangerous place to be. And I want to give you some, some tools today to help you with this art of sharing forgiveness. I think there's three types of forgiveness that we can talk about. There's something called exoneration, and then there's forbearance, and then there is release. Exoneration is probably what we think about the most when we think about forgiveness, right? It's wiping the slate clean. It's somebody that you care very much for and want to renew a right relationship with. It's maybe a young child who just made an innocent, honest mistake, or it's somebody who, who actually did make a significant mistake, but they realize it, and they, they are genuinely repentant towards you, and they, they recognize that, and they take full responsibility, and it's a joy to forgive that individual because you want to be right with them. That's forbearance. Excuse me, no, that is, that is exoneration. Forbearance is when it's a little bit more difficult. When maybe the apology was halfway, or they're not really sorry, and maybe there's a chance they're gonna do it again, but this person is still important to you. Say, like a teenager. <laughs> Right? You know they're still going to make mistakes. You know they're just a little bit not quite sorry what they did for what they did. But you want to be in a right relationship with them, so you, you forgive. But you don't forget. You trust, but you verify. This is forbearance. And then we get to the release. And the release is that special forgiveness for those people in your lives who have harmed you deeply. We're talking about sins of neglect or abuse or, or complete and total betrayal. Somebody who's, who's not sorry whatsoever. Somebody who has a high likelihood of repeating this. 
For this, we have the special type of forgiveness called release. And release is something you do as much for them as you do for yourself. Because to continue to hold on to the pain that that person has caused you allows them to live rent-free in your head and it perpetuates the pain. But the way that you encounter your own healing is to forgive that individual, but set firm boundaries that will not allow that person to continue harming you. So whether it's exoneration or forbearance or even release, this is the forgiveness that we're called to share with those who have hurt us and wronged us. That once you release this pain, release this anger, release that person from what they have done, you encounter healing. And you encounter that joy of your own salvation. And this, this art of forgiveness, when we receive it from God, when we extend it to others, it begins to make changes in who we are. The power of life in Christ starts to reshape and reform our life into this a whole new picture. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, by the pressure pushing in to us. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Tim Keller had this idea of looking at the Lord's Prayer, number one, as an example of how to pray, but also, and I really enjoyed this, also as a picture of what a transformed life looks like. That we would, as we are transformed by the power of God, to see our Father not as a God of gods, but as our relational Father who longs to be in a relationship with us. A person with this transformed life sees that God's name is holy to us. God's name is already holy, but, but a transformed life has that special place for God's name in their heart. They know the great power. They know, they know that this is holy, set apart, special, that we can use it to call on him in prayer, praise, thanksgiving, and as we share his name with the world. Somebody who's been totally transformed by the power of life in Christ also has this incredible trust that God will provide daily bread. We can throw away anxieties. We can throw away doubts and fears because we know that every morning when we wake up, God will richly supply all that we need to accomplish that day well. Somebody who is transformed by the power of life in Christ, allows their own mind and will to be shaped by God. They long for their will to be in alignment with God's will, not vice versa. They want to be used by God according to his purposes. A person whose life is transformed begins to, to hate their own sinfulness and desires more and more righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they hate the sin in them. A power who's, a, a person whose life has been transformed by Christ relishes that full pardon that we receive from God and generously shares it with those around them. It's a life of absolute peace. 
a life of tremendous clarity, of power, of freedom, a life of beauty. That's the, the life that's described by the Lord's Prayer. That's the transformed life of renewal. A disciple at St. Luke's Lutheran Church is one who is being transformed by the power of God into a life of freedom, joy, sacrifice, and renewal. If we are successful in our mission of awakening hearts in every generation to the power of life in Christ, that is what we will become. But how? How do we experience this? Well, after Reformation next week, we'll begin to share about the things that we do to encounter this transformation. But until then, may the peace that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.